0: Welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joel Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to have you with me another Friday evening where we have the opportunity this 22nd Sunday in Ordinary Time to reflect into the Gospel for Sunday. And in contrast to the blessing of Peter, uh, last week, <laughs> this week we have Jesus rebuking him. Uh, Peter's confession of faith last week was inspired by the Father. This week, his natural instincts object to a suffering Messiah. On his own, we see that Peter cannot see the spiritual necessity of our Lord's passion for sinners. So, This 22nd Sunday in Ordinary Time is uh, quite a set of verses in light of what we read last week. So I do welcome you this evening. I am flying solo, so if you have any questions for me, please do not hesitate to email me at jholljmj at yahoo.com, or you can go to my website at joeholcraft.org and just hit that contact link and uh, send your question on its way. Uh, It will be well received, and certainly I always look forward to To hearing from you. So, with that, this 22nd Sunday in Ordinary Time has us again in Matthew 16, uh, verses 21 to 27, uh, the verses immediately following those verses uh, we heard last week in Peter's Confession of Faith. So, if you do have your Bibles out there, turn to chapter 16, uh, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not on the side of God, but of men. Then Jesus told his disciples, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? or what shall a man give in return for his life? For the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay every man for what he has done. Amen. Some rich verses here, huh? Tonight, by way of our reflection, we will primarily draw from, again, Mary Caucus, that uh, great biblical theologian on the Gospel of Matthew, as well as figures like Benedict Sixteenth, he certainly has much to say on these verses as well. And so, yeah, when it comes to the Gospel of Matthew, in my own reflection and prayer, I usually draw from not only, of course, by the grace of God, the Holy Spirit, but figures like Mary Caucus and Benedict Sixteenth. You can't go wrong there. So, with that, this first announcement of the Passion— You know, troubling indeed, my friends, is it not (laughs) this passage that now follows immediately upon the Lord's promises to Peter? We see that while Peter had gotten right Jesus' identity as Redeemer, he had not yet understood the divinely appointed means of redemption. So, last week it was about affirming Peter. In his confession of faith. This week, he's rebuking him. You are a hindrance to me. You are scandal to me. So in this set of verses, what we have is an event that occurs right before the transfiguration and right after Peter's confession of faith. This implies that the power conferred on Peter and the glory of Jesus as Son of God cannot be effective and redemptive until the Messiah dies on the cross. Now, what does Peter hear? Peter hears the themes of defeat and suffering and wants to do anything and everything in his power to divert that. With the same imperious authority with which Jesus has just proclaimed in the prophetic feature tense, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against my church. Jesus now affirms that he must go to Jerusalem in order to suffer, be put to death by sinners and be raised from the dead by the Father. Wow! He is most passionately insistent to Peter on the necessity of his pouring out his life. What we see here, my friends, is a kind of momentous determination by our Lord to go to Jerusalem. Remember what the word Jerusalem means. Remember the origin of the city of Jerusalem. This has us going back to the great covenant between Abraham and God, huh? Where Abraham takes a son up Mount Moriah, and at the brink of sacrificing his son, the angel of the Lord intervenes and says what? I will provide the lamb. Well, let us remember that Abraham was going up Mount Moriah in the city of Salem. When God the Father says to Abraham, I will provide the lamb, historically speaking, we have the beginnings of Jerusalem, because the Hebrew word for provide is Jeru. Hence, it is no longer just Salem, the city of peace. It is Jeru-Salem. The city of peace where God is going to provide the lamb for the slaughter, huh? This is, of course, what Christ has come to fulfill. Now, yes, historically, what do we read in that account in Genesis 22? God literally provides uh, the, the lamb, the ram in this case, right? Where his horns get stuck in, in, in the thickets. And he is then offered up as the sacrifice. Here, in this reading... In this first announcement of the passion, what we have again is this momentous determination where Jesus lets the whole world know the time has come. And so in this momentous determination by Jesus to go up to Jerusalem and the certain death it implies, we have a profound revelation of the thoughts and the will of God, do we not? Now to Peter... So attached to his master, it only sounds like the tragic separation of dear friends and the bitter end of a communion in life and hope for the future, that which is reduced to just the material. What Jesus has in mind is the fullness of life for his disciples. Peter can only see the immediate, enjoyable fellowship he experiences at that moment. Do we not encounter that? Joy is a good thing. Joy is the best of things. You've heard me say before in reflecting upon the words of Benedict XVI, joy is the first proclamation of the New Testament. We have in Luke 128, this angelic salutation, this angelic greeting to this humble virgin of Nazareth. And what is that greeting in the Greek Heikaritomene? Rejoice, O highly favored one. Hail, full of great grace. Rejoice! Rejoice. It's interesting. The Greek there also renders the word grace. It is no wonder that Benedict XVI says what he says about the first proclamation of the New Testament being joy. Because the New Testament is about the new dispensation in grace. The New Testament is about this new relationship in God. Where no longer the law is written on stone, but inscribed upon the heart. The heart, which is the intimate center of the person, the thinking person, the acting person, the emotional person. The heart is the center. And now we have been given the gift to shape our heart, to form our heart, to dispose our heart, to do what God wants us to do. And what's its first fruit? Joy. It is, again, no wonder that joy and grace belong to the same Greek word. All of that being said, there is a shift here. And that shift is, if you wish to know the joy of God, what you must understand is that there's a struggle in it. What does 1 Peter 4.13 say? Rejoice in the sufferings. Why? Because in those moments where we are going through our trial, where we are going through our suffering, what we discover is that it is a means to an end and that end is the sum goal of all Christian truth, Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus wants us to see. He's telling you and I and everyone willing to hear, I must go to Jerusalem if I will accomplish the task that I have come for. And then, After the suffering, after all of the purgation, I will in turn give to you the gift of the Holy Spirit that will empower you, that will embolden you, that will be that life-giving energy that comes from my divine source. So it is. So it is, my friends. When we share in the mission of Christ, on the other side of it is a new impetus To love as Christ loves, and that love is the source of our joy. Does Peter see this? No. He took him, and he began to rebuke him. This scene, by the way, and action are eerily reminiscent of the temptation scene in the desert, is it not? When the devil took Jesus to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. In both cases, we see the creature in the temptation narrative Satan here, Peter, the creature trying to contain and derail the divine energy of the creator because in its limitation, the creature perpetually thinks it can do things better and more efficiently than the wisdom who created the universe. You have heard me say this before. We need to get out of the way of truth, capital T. Far too often, we are getting in the way of God working. We need to take a step back, draw back, allow God to work in our circle. And in doing so, what we will see is that the true wisdom of God, as Proverbs 3, 5 reminds us, is that we should never rely on what we think we know, but ultimately trust in the wisdom of God. The wisdom of that is understood in light of that anawim of sonship, being poor in God. We can only gain access into that deeper wisdom of God when we do what? Render our hearts to God in the same way that our children render their hearts to us, especially our children who are little. Very important here. Now, I want to make a point here. There is a vast difference between the devil's and Peter's motivations. As Mary Caucus notes, (laughs) in defense of Christ's newly appointed rock of faith, we can say that his error, my friends, comes from an uninformed and defective love. What is certain is that Peter's motivation proceeds simply from a misguided love for Christ. He simply does not want suffering for his friend and master. As it relates to Satan, that's a whole different agenda, obviously. There, of course, we're not talking about defective love, but the absence of love. There is a a wonderful reflection that comes to us from St. Augustine. We celebrated... At his feast day, just yesterday, right? Uh, the great church father from Hippo. Uh, he says this, and I just love this as we try to understand the contradictions anguishing Peter. Impelled by perfect love, Peter ended his life dying for the name of Christ, with whom he had earlier vowed. He wanted to die, but under the prompting of a disordered haste. Made strong by the Lord's resurrection, He will indeed accomplish what he had prematurely vowed at a time when he was still weak. It was necessary, St. Augustine says, in fact, that Christ should first die for Peter's salvation in order that Peter should then be able to die for having preached Christ. What human presumption dared to pretend was, in fact, subverting the order of things that truth himself had disposed. Peter believed he could give his life for Christ the one who still needed to be liberated, wanted to give his life for his Liberator, capital L. While Christ had come to sacrifice his life for all, among whom was also Peter. So, a beautiful reflection, huh? As I read this excerpt from St. Augustine, I I moved back to this narrative to ask a question. What is getting in the way? Why is Peter doing what he's doing? What have we not talked about yet? Is it not this idea that we think we know better than God? That we really down deep still for all that God has done for us. That down deep we secretly nurture an inner conviction that we know better than God. We want to love and to serve God heroically. But I don't know if we always trust in God the way we are called to trust in God. We want to love and to serve God heroically, but we do not trust that God is greater and wiser than we are, that God knows us and our circumstances better than we know ourselves and is therefore quite capable of structuring every minute of our lives in the best way fit. In other words, my friends, Our lack of trust makes us want to play the mature adult before God's presence. And what happens? In that moment, we forget that the kingdom of God belongs to the childlike. Remember that trust is the most concrete act and virtue of faith. Faith is first a gift and second, it is an act. And that act is trust. The untrusting and self-reliant Peter in this episode attempts to void our Lord's mission. That being said, we must marvel at the mystery of our Lord's wisdom. The odd choice of entrusting so momentous a task to someone presently at that moment so unqualified. As we were just uh, noting the other day, Jesus does not call the qualified, but he qualifies the call. In all of this, what we are made to see is that the inerrancy of Jesus points to the cross because the inerrancy of the cross is the supreme realization of the work of divine love. He who loves must suffer. And only he who suffers for love is infallible because only such a person deeply understands the connection and cohesion between the mysteries of the inner life of God and the work of sanctifying grace in a world immersed in sin as alienation from God's own life. The chasm between the two cannot be bridged without suffering unto death. Jesus must go to Jerusalem and deliver himself into the hands of sinners that in laying violent hands on him, they may at last, unbeknownst to them, grasp life because death is the means to life. This is the great paradox of our Christian and Catholic faith, is it not? This is what the icon of the crucifix, teaches us. Every time we look at the cross and the corpus on the cross, we're reminded of that most salient truth of Christianity, where there's death, there's life. So, our Lord's response to Peter. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. I mean, Jesus here sets a standard for truth in friendship when he calls Peter Satan. Since Satan is God's archenemy, no epithet could have been more wounding and therefore more effective hurled by the Son of God to his human friend, Peter. Jesus came among us, not primarily, my friends, to establish this easygoing human fellowship, the sort that produces warm feelings of acceptance and belonging. He came among us to redeem us from sin, an operation that cannot avoid inflicting pain. Friendship in truth means never forgetting the ultimate goal of our life by basking in the enjoyable illusion of our present security and mutual human support. This is a danger for all of us because of our nature, this constant need to be patted on the back. Now, I'm not saying, you know, encouragement is a bad thing. Encouragement can be the best of things. But how do we see the word encouragement? Why do we do what we do? Do we encourage our brothers and sisters to push forward in the task that Christ has before us for human enjoyment or do we encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ to push, to push forward in the, the task so as to attain the crown of the heavenly Jerusalem? Okay, so what does our Lord then say in verse 24, chapter 16, verse 24? If anyone wants to come after me, what is he saying here? Building on Peter's negative example, even as he had previously built on his positive example, Jesus enlightens the disciples. Once you were behind me, at least he seems to be saying, rather than in front of me obstructing my way, you can take up your cross and follow me. No one can follow by going ahead. The disciple is not above his master. The disciple does not lead or teach his master. If we want to be a disciple of Christ, our will to lead must be replaced with a will to obey. Remember what that word means obey. Obedience, ob adire, to listen. We are called to lose our life by scattering it as Christ is doing so here. Now, humanly speaking, To save one's life. What is our Lord talking about in these verses? To save one's life means to shape one's life willfully on one's own terms. To impose self-generated values and principles as sole sources of the meaning of one's life. The human dimension of saving one's life in this sense involves all of those strategies for survival that has us resorting to any means of survival. Such a strategy for saving one's life, as a matter of fact, can rather be guaranteed to yield its very opposite. We will be lost. We will lose our life. Because life that does not grow is not life. And the survival of the self as intact self is the definition of utter stagnation of being. In our Lord's view of losing, what he is saying is that losing the instinctual and self-willed self is finding the genuine and God-willed self. We must be broken open. Huh? Again, here we are talking the stuff of paradoxical language. We lose ourself so as to gain a deeper understanding and meaning of self. We lose ourself in the context of how the world has us thinking about self so that we might gain the deeper meaning of who we are, that we might restore our identity in light of being created in the image and likeness of God. It's interesting, as I am talking about this, there is something that has been lost in today's discussion at the highest levels of anthropology, and that is this. Anthropology is just not the study of Cro-Magnon man, the study of Neanderthal man, and so on and so forth. Anthropology of this is the study of the body and the soul, huh? Huh? Anthropology is the study of the unity of the body and the soul. Just not the human, but the human person. So when we talk about Christian anthropology in light of the revelation of Jesus Christ, is that it is Jesus Christ who offers us the full vision of man. Just not, again, man within the context of humanity, but man within the context of his divine potential. Fundamentally, being human is not reduced to just progressing uh, technologically or advancing in the material sciences. No. What do those sciences point to but the science of faith? What Christ reveals to us is that there is more to the flesh, but there is spirit. There is more to just the physical element, there is the spiritual element, body, and soul. And therefore, when we are suffering in the flesh, when we are suffering in the body, we are made to see that our suffering is a means to an end. And in this way, we share in this redemptive mission of Christ, in this redemptive mission that Christ has entrusted us with. I used the word scandal earlier as it relates to Peter Because it is scandalous when someone gets in our way if we are doing the will of the Father. And so we are called to accept the crosses that come our way. To deny self. Pick up those crosses and follow Him. Remember that most salient truth as it is revealed in the meaning of the cross. We often say, Man, I am going through this thing and it is so excruciating. Be careful of what you say. Because that word excruciating, excruces, literally means from the cross. If we are going through something that is excruciating, it comes to us from the cross and Christ is asking us to share in his redemptive mission. Colossians 1.24 reminds us of this. This call to share. this redemptive mission. Now, as St. Augustine noted in that reading I read earlier, Peter would come to understand this most definitively, so much so that he himself would be crucified for our Lord. He was so humbled to share in our Lord's death in that same way that he was asked asked to be crucified upside down. Wow. Let us close in a word of prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And God bless you.